Scuba Obsessed, the weekly podcast we talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear to places to dive in scuba news. Scuba Obsessed, episode 394, is recorded live January 17th, 2019. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jolson coming to you from the sixth side of the great state of Michigan. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well, and I'm glad we're doing this long distance. Yeah, I, I, I don't think I can give you the plague over the over the airways. Leastways, I hope not. Yeah. Yeah, I thought I would be done with this. I uh, After, uh, as tradition dictates... I took uh, time off for Christmas, and uh, since I was on vacation, why not get sick? So I had a cold, and I completely recovered from that. And then it seemed uh, about a week ago, I started coming down with a cold again, and I fought it off, and I thought I was done with it. But I'm at that stage where (coughs) I feel like I'm coughing up a lung. So we'll see. About about an hour ago, I lost my voice, but it seems to have come back. Now I've got those deep, sick tones. That Earl Jones resonant quality. Yes, yes. We get that. Get that going. I just wish I had some sort of script I could read. You know, do like a voiceover, make some money while I'm sick. Maybe some <laughs> advantage to it. I'd like to thank everybody who's in the chat room. We have uh, Eric, and we have Craig. Craig is our reporting, a recording bot, and I'm I'm actually doing a backup recording as well because uh, we have had some problems with them. It, it actually, it's what it's doing, and hopefully people notice that Max audio sounds better and any of our guests sounds better, but mine will occasionally drop out. And we've got a few episodes where I've got to do some extensive editing. Uh, the one with uh, Rick Mixter. Did I say his name right now? Uh, I'll blame it on the I'll blame it on the cold if I didn't. Uh, his his sounds great, but about ninety five percent in the interview, it's it's like I'm talking into a fan. You you can hear like every other syllable. So I've got to figure out what it was I asked, record what I asked, and then edit it in so it sounds somewhat natural. So shh, don't tell anybody who listens. That way they uh, hopefully they'll never notice. But that's coming up, so uh, I, I feel bad for not getting that episode out earlier. So we jumped ahead quite a bit. Um, this week we're almost current. Earlier today, I, I published last week's episode because I just couldn't wait any longer. I was just it was taking too long to edit the back the old one. So I've got about three or four old ones that we'll catch up on. But in the meantime, keeping keeping everybody giving them something to listen to on their drives and. I have noticed in the past that January seems to be a pretty busy month. People must be, uh, for as far as the podcast goes, people must be planning their vacations or traveling. So without any further ado, let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. If you wanted to follow along, we had, we give show notes out early to our Patreon supporters. If you want to join them, you can 
visit our website, www.scubaobsessed.com. Click on over to our Patreon link and, you know, any amount is certainly appreciated. $3 or more will give you early access to the show notes. And you would have had it today. I was really early. Usually it's just like minutes before the show, but today I had them a couple hours early. So you could have uh, researched it and become an expert and then heckled us in the chat room. So uh, the first article is out of New Zealand, a scuba diver rescue. As we surfaced, the boat was no longer in sight. Kind of the thing you don't want to see or hear about even. When Chris Williams surfaced from his dive off Omaha Beach with a haul of scallops, the last thing he expected to see was a dive boat drifting into the horizon. The Auckland... <coughs> <coughs> Oh, it's going to be a hell to edit this. The Aucklander is attempting his prompt, attributing his prompt rescue from the water after the engine on the boat failed to the raft of safety precautions and the quick thinking of the boaties on board. William 30 was out diving with his brother last Friday afternoon. The pair found themselves stranded in the water. As we surfaced, we quickly realized the boat was no longer in sight. They scanned the horizon and spotted his father's boat with his dad and another boatie on board almost a kilometer away from their diving spot. There was no response or signal to the duo on board, and they quickly realized something had gone wrong. Probably at that time they may have been 700, 800 meters away within our ability to swim, William said, but the distance was growing further and further apart as we watched. It was very windy in the water, and six-and-a-half-meter Stabacraft boat with a hard top acts like a sail in the wind. The boat's anchor hadn't stuck in the bottom of the seafloor, allowing it to be dragged along in the wind. What they couldn't figure out was why the parent board weren't doing anything to get the boat back to their dive spot. Meanwhile, on board, the boaties have been dealing with their own dilemma. Within minutes of Chris and Matt entering the water, they realized the boat was drifting, but when they tried to start the engine to move the boat, the motor stalled. They would later discover a piece of rope hanging off the end of the boat had caught around the prop of the engine, an easy fix. But at the time, they assumed it was electronic failure fault of the engine. Realizing the peril of the group were in, the two boaties promptly dialed 111. They were put through the police and gave the point where they were dropped in the water as well as where they were at the time, William said. The boaties' quick thinking meant a chopper was already hovering in the area looking for them when they popped up. As soon as I inflated the orange safety sausage, I noticed the chopper changed their flight path and came directly to us. Very shortly after, within probably two minutes, the Omaha irb boat arrived and asked us hey you guys okay what's going on they explained the situation the irb took them back to their boat as they were drawing close to the boat they spotted the rope dangling the water from the engine they figured out what had happened they helped remove the rope and the engine whirled back to life the police spokesman said the staff were alerted the boats the diver's boat had broken down and drifted away while they were in the water a short time later another boat picked up the divers, returned them to the original vessel, the spokesman said. Neither the divers required medical attention after the incident. Williams said there were lessons to be learned from the ordeal and that he and Matt had not been prepared. They would have been very, very different scenario. It's not complete open ocean, but just about that. If we hadn't had our safety markers, and I believe the chopper would have had a lot of difficulty finding us. Williams praised the work of the Coast Guard and lifeguard who took part in the rescue. Maritime police contact us a bit later, and they did say, you guys did everything right. We had a dive flag on the boat, the signals to other boats that two divers in the water, and they were carrying a floating dive flag, which attracted, attached to me at all times. 
Sure Life Saving Northern Region Chief Executive Matt Williams said the issues could crop up even for divers that did everything by the book. Well, Surf Life Saving didn't look after scuba diving. Specifically, the organization often responded to incidents where things had gone wrong. William urged people to get Patty trained and accredited before heading out diving, taking a float, diving so the boat master knows where they are at all times, and to dive with a buddy. It's really basic common sense, he said. Diving incidents leading to injury and death were frequently and increasing, something that Williams believes because more people are taking up diving. I think they did a lot right. I'm, I would question that they did everything right. But it certainly could have gone a lot worse for them. It seems like that is not an unusual. I can't remember if we had talked about this one before where uh, a couple had been on a charred boat, go out diving, and there was six people. All of them extremely experienced. Uh, the man and the one I'm thinking about were a little older. He had over 5,000 dives. He had over 4,000. They were both petty instructors. Um, when they went down, she made sure she took her extra long inflatable buoy. Uh, he didn't take his, but she took her, what is it called, the uh, immediate response beacon item. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> they did their dive, current dive. Uh, started to come back up. Current had increased tremendously such that so when they came up, there was no boat either. Uh, they came up, at least everybody came up together, uh, two groups of three. Uh, the chop was getting so bad that didn't see above the waves. So they got together, lashed each other, so they had all six of them together. And they said, okay, we're going to wait a little bit because we put the little buoy up. And they, were, they waited another 45 minutes, almost to an hour. And then they said, okay, this is long enough. Let's go ahead and use your beacon. So I had a picture of actually taking it up, sticking it in the sky, triggering it, and bingo. 50, and they had boats come near them but assumed they were okay. Oh. When the beacon went off, the boat thought they were okay, came back. <laughs> oh, yeah. <clears throat> and wow. the key item was the boaters that did come back said, had you not had that six-foot-plus extension, we would have never seen you in the So even with that, and knowing in the area, that buoy is what made them visible. Yes. Yeah. Well, lucky for me, one of the things that I earned from our, uh, oh, crap, I can't think of the name now. I'm, I'm blaming the cold. Uh, ecology dive was that safety sausage. So I've got a smaller one, which is probably a four foot, and then I've got that much larger one, which is whatever the regulation size now is. Well, I got the Dan one that I can, I put a, uh, not a mirror, but I got a, uh, CD disc, mm -hmm. put into the shop. There's a net part. I now, carry now is, a Kim light in it. Is that so an AOL I disc? I, th I, th uh, I thought AOL was requirement for those. I I think it's just a nice shiny one that I had, <laughs> and and I'll Kim light. And ah, yes, the Kim light. That's those, that's important. I've, I've got those small ones, and those are a pain in the butt. You use half of them trying to go down, keep them from bending over. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I, I gave the other ones away for if you're using a lake or something. 
But uh, every time I go in the big lake, we're doing any kind of diving. I take the big one. Yeah, I they're they're small enough. I've got both of them on. You know, I can use one as uh, like if I'm on the bottom, I can attach it to a uh, reel and float it up the signal, and then I've got the big one for being on the surface. Right, and I am not opposed to when I'm on some wrecks, even the Havana, and depending on the conditions, mm-hmm. of taking a flag with me, a dive flag, so you know where I'm at. We were discussing this at the dive shop uh, actually yesterday. Of we need a better system of recall at the minimum. Yes. When we're doing mixed of open circuit and rebreathers, because I can't keep track of where the rebreathers are. I was doing surface support, and I get very nervous when I don't know where my people are, and it's like I think they should be coming back now. <coughs> I would like to have to come up with a very simple system. Imagine having something you kept in your pocket and depending on how you opened it up underwater, it would send a different signal to the surface. A pingers. And I was looking into that one. We looked at a audible, a mm-hmm. good one underwater recall system costs around two grand, a real quality one. Uh, the second aspect is like a hydrophone, which picks up sound. So if yeah. you have the pinger with you and it's deactivated until you trigger it, then you know you got somebody on the bottom who's got an issue. Yeah, then you it, can do it, your recall, and now you only got one person you're looking for. Yeah, because I, I thought the same thing. You, you drop something in the water from the boat that you could listen down that would broadcast, and then, you know, because like you said, these rebreather divers, they're silent down there. And unless you bump into them or see their their amazing LED lights, you don't necessarily know where they are. Well, it, you don't at all. And I get nervous anymore when we go out, even on the shallow wrecks, because, and I'll use Bob as an example. He'll go down, set the anchor, come up, give us a thumbs up, and he goes down and does his surveying. Everybody else does their open circuit. Everybody's back up, you know, five other guys, and Bob's still down there. Mm-hmm. I have no idea where Bob is. Yeah. I know he, an approximate, you know, he's going to be there an hour and a half. Yeah. But I feel really bad. Like, well, at what point do we say we have a problem? I have been to that point where I was with, I would say less than five minutes away of saying we need to, we either need to suit up and go down form or we need to call for help. Right. And that's uh, why a pinger system with a hydrophone is, Hydro, you know, pickup is mm-hmm. something we're looking into, and I, I think it'd be a good idea. So, if anybody listening to this podcast knows of that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. let me know. Yeah, or we'd like to know that. Yeah, because I, oh, I've seen that you've you've started to see some of these, and we still have yet to see anything in a commercial product that's readily available in the U.S. But you've got these where they're they're. Uh, they're supposed to be able to give you directional readings of all the divers that are in the water. Cause I just, it'd be, it'd be nice just to have that little bit extra uh, information. Just make I, you feel a little bit more comfortable. Oh, it would definitely make me feel more comfortable if I was a boat owner and I've got divers in the water and I'm responsible for them or I will feel yeah. responsible for them. Yeah. But the, the thing about this is if you look, if you look at this instance, it wasn't, one thing that went wrong that caused a problem, it was the fact that there were two. And that's that compounding of problems that really gets you in trouble. 
know, usually just about, depending on what it is, just about any one thing that goes wrong, you can recover from if you remain calm. But it's when you start getting two and three and four that uh, that's when things really start to go bad. Well, I know that a lot of times if we got low vis, I always put my tagline on the anchor or, you know, the chain five feet above it. And then I do my happy because if it suddenly gets taut, like somebody's pulling me, I got a real good clue that the anchor is not mm-hmm. set. Yeah. And But then again, we usually go down and we set the anchor because we're right. not I just mean, out in the middle of sand. We're not in coral. We're not worried about that. We either put it on something that can't move like part of the rack structure, you know, and or we do, you know, do a good sand mount, but mm-hmm. we still tag it. Yeah. And, you know, Bob Bowie's supposed to strobe light 10, 10 feet above it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that I I love that light. That's in the eventuality of that if I ever get a boat, those he some of the stuff that he's got on his, I would certainly do on mine as well. Talking about Bob, did you see the modifications he made on his boat? Oh yeah, yeah. We're we're jumping all around here for people who who, who aren't <laughs> aren't used to it. Uh, but uh, Bob Sweeney, one of the divers in the club, he has a nice rib rigid hull inflatable uh, Zodiac. And uh, every year he usually makes a little bit of an improvement. It's about, uh, I'd say, maybe is it an 18-foot or 17? I'm not sure the, the length. But, yeah, he's you know he's added a bimini top, and he's got a bench seat in the back, and he's uh, moved it from it was a center console that used to straddle, and now he's moved it off to the side with a stand-up console. So he's done some improvements. And uh, in the early days when you, we used to dive on it, what you did is to get back in the boat, there was no ladder you kind of reached over the top of the sides and you would kind of time it with the waves and bounce. And then when you wanted to come in, you would kick really hard with your fins on. You would take your tank off and attach it to a tagline uh, with your fins on. And then you would launch yourself into the boat and it, it was an acquired skill. So the first time you were on the boat, it would take you a while and usually had to have two guys grab you to haul you in the boat kind of like landing a fish, but after a while you could get it going. Well, then he added a rope ladder a few years back, and that made it a little bit easier, but anybody who's tried to climb anything with a rope ladder knows that's a little tougher. So he's added um, a fancier telescoping ladder by the looks of it. Um, So it's almost luxurious now. Looking forward to trying it out. Yeah. Yeah. So here we are in January. Hopefully it won't be too much longer. I mean, we've, we've kind of skated through this winter, you know, so far well i keep hearing anywhere uh three broadcast one estimated two to three snow the other was four to six and i've heard eight to ten so <laughs> i don't i don't know which one to believe but i do know the canal is icing up you oh. get into the middle of the state around kalamazoo and north uh it's starting ice already you're talking two and three inches just in mm-hmm. the last week so we're talking ice time if it's coming up yeah, it's going to be coming up pretty here pretty soon. In the chat room, Mac, uh, David's saying that Light Monkey has a new strobe named the BAF 4000 Lumen Strobe. So I like that, that strobe that Bob has. Let's see. Uh, that was just the first article. I thought it was going to be a quick one tonight, but maybe not. This one's the Tallahassee Democrat has reported a submerged mastodon may provide clues to ancient mysteries. Um, eight feet below the surface in the Wakalua 
River lies the remains of a mastodon covered in sediment, and within that sediment could attract uh, it could attract could be the artifact that unlocks the mystery of the last chapter of the Paleocene age. I'm I'm mispronouncing that. For about twelve days, a team of archaeologists from Akula Research Institute has used a floating swim dock at Wakula Springs as a staging area for their underwater excavation. There's a painstaking operation made difficult by the cold water wetsuits, cumbersome diving equipment, and curious manatees that are constantly moving around the marker buoys. Multiply the challenges by 10 and add manatees, Tom said Tom Harmon, a board member of the Akula Research Institute. <coughs> Using a 2 by 3 meter rail track developed years ago to excavate mastodon sites at the Akula River. They move from section to section, delicately scooping up the sediment with their hands into a four-inch wide dredging tube that sucks in water. Is that marl? M-A-R-L? Marl and artifacts up to a barge with a long metal mesh screen on its deck. So they're just describing uh, normal archaeological processes and they go on. Yeah. Then they ask how many mastodon are down there. He said, at Akula, the water is a dark roast coffee. He said a thousand watt light couldn't penetrate the darkness. The water at the current site is consistency of mild iced tea, and the divers can see with a natural light that filters down. The current site is just off the swimming float beyond the rope boundary for swimmers. The site is named after James Vickery, a former park ranger, discovered the site while planting eelgrass plugs for the manatees who frequent the springs. Hemming said the identification also appeared to be part of a prehistoric canoe. <coughs> they had the luck of digging through clearly marked sedimentary labor, layers and have reached a level of the bone bed layer where the mastodon skull rests. The golds get the upper surface exposed to see how much skeleton is there and to see how old the mastodon is, Hemming said. They took gore samples one meter deep. Dunbar's Using ground pen radar to see where the mastodon was. It was like reading a, a Rorschach test, he said. The bubble of sediment the size of the mastodon, a cocoon, Dunbar said. The question is whether there's another mastodon body there or is there evidence of human artifacts that suggest interaction with the mastodon. At that point, the site would shift from paleologic one that deals with animal fossils to an archaeological site that focuses more on human artifacts and material culture. We hope to tie down what we found on land to what's on shore and to Akula, Dunbar said. <coughs> He's hopeful because of this deep... Uh, sometimes I look at these words and they just I don't know what they are. Stratigraphy? At the site, the layer cake of time and sediment... The initial exploration to see this is just paleontological, or if it warrants a full-blown archaeological excavation, Hemming said. Monday morning, the team found two mammals' teeth along with fish and turtles and reptile teeth. We found a beaver and a pocket gopher mixed up in with aquatic stuff, Hemming said. We're getting out of the strictly aquatic environment closely to old traditional surface. And there they go on. It's quite a detailed article worth reading. We'll have links in the show notes. Uh, 
some nice pictures. You see the uh, Macedon on at the display at the Museum of Florida History. Yeah, I was just curious since they said maybe part of a canoe was there, and mm-hmm. with the other artifact, it sounds like that might have been a hunter gatherer thing, or maybe they had it there, hunters, and had the animals. That's why there are so many skeletons or something of the other items. Well, it could be, you know, assuming this is a while before, it could have been a trap type of site. Yeah. Like, like you know, it maybe it was a little bit shallower back in the time when the mastodon was there. Mm-hmm. And maybe they used to like to go in the water and then they had some sort of uh, hunting technique where they could trap it and, you know, corner it, so to speak. And then the canoe would have just been, you know, now you've got it and you've got a haul it and process it yeah might be easier to drown it than try to stab it oh maybe i mean uh, could you stuff its nose in the water i mean get it breathe through its mouth <laughs> but that, that would uh <laughs> sounds like something from a cartoon but huh maybe they're not as dangerous in the water <laughs> in the chat room saying grass-fed manatee and then this one is from the Carolina Coastline uh, uh, com. QAR suit appeals to the Supreme Court of the United States. A videographer accused a North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources in the state of North Carolina of copyright infringement with images related to Queen Anne's revenge and have filed an appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court to reverse the lower court's July 2018 decision that favored the state. After the U.S. Fourth Court ruling, we engaged Quinn Emanuel to lead our appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. Hopefully, we'll take out in March and April. The Supreme Court will will take the case. Videographer Rick Allen, co-owner of Nautilus Productions, LLC, based in Fayetteville, stated in an email to the News Times Friday. In response, Michelle Walker, Public Information Officer of the Department, said Friday in an email to the News Times that, it's our policy not to comment on ongoing litigation. What do people think? Who who responds during a lawsuit? Has it ever been anything else? It's been a long battle between Mr. Allen and the state regarding the use of video footage and the images that captured during the state's expedition to research on the Queen Anne's Revenge shipwreck, flagship for the notorious pirate Blackbeard. The wreck was discovered in Beaufort Inlet by... Intersol Incorporated Marine Research Company based in Boca Raton, Florida, in November 1996. Intersol has also been involved with a lengthy lawsuit against the state regarding the usage of its images. Intersol appealed the unfavorable ruling by the lowing court to the New York, uh, New York, North Carolina Supreme Court after Intersol discovered the QAR, the rights to the shipwreck, since June 10th, 1718, returned over to the state. The state underwater archaeologists and researchers have conducted many expeditions, receiving thousands of artifacts, many on display at the North Carolina Maritime Museum in Beaufort. <coughs> Nautilus Productions worked with the state Intersol to document the dive expeditions, and some of the company's footage was used by the DNCR in tourism, promotion, and educational materials. As for the most recent action regarding Mr. Allen's allegations of copyright infringement, the fourth the U.S. Fourth Court Circuit Court of Appeals ruled last July in favor of the state of North Carolina, reversing a previous decision made by the district court finding that the D- 
NCR and officials infringed on his copyright. The state maintains that it had fair use of the material, but Mr. Allen's filed a suit in 2015 claiming use of the material violated federal copyright law. He also claimed the law adopted in 2015 by the General Assembly and signed by former Governor Pat McCrory, which states North Carolina has sovereignty, sovereign immunity related to his materials and unconstitutional and robbed them of his income. The legislation known as Blackbeard's Law states that all photographs, video recordings, and other documentary materials of derelict vessels and shipwrecks and relics, artifacts, and historic materials in custody of the state agency shall be public record. After the U.S. District Court ruled in March 2017 in favor of Nautilus' state appeal in 2018 to the federal court maintaining it has qualified legislature's immunity and therefore cannot be sued by private parties for copyright infringement. Mr. Allen insists that he has the rights to sue the state under the Copyright Remedy Clarification Act of 1990, and he has sued the state, the DNCR, the government of his official capacity, and a number of department officials in their individual and official capacity. However, the state and court documents have cited numerous previous cases where the courts have found Clarification Act was invalid, stating it superseded by Article I of the U.S. Constitution prevents states from being subject to of lawsuits. The state also maintains it did not use copyright works for profit. Wow, what a twisted mess this is. Well, it sounds to me like they're saying, yeah, we're doing it wrong, but you can't sue us. Well, right, so you've got bad actors involved. Right, because, uh, I mean, for, uh, this was interesting. You weren't at the dive meeting the other day, but uh, on that last wreck that was found up north, the shoreline yeah. wreck that was uncovered, mm-hmm that you're going to talk about another one in Germany similar to it. Either way, one of our club members had some fantastic photos taken by his drone and was used in publications, uh, and he was not given credit. And, in fact, other sources were. And uh, once he contacted the national items, they corrected it within an hour or so because of that aspect that's, Mm-hmm. His property, right? Um, copyright and, laws. I'm go ahead. Yeah, he was not so much interested in money. He just wanted them to acknowledge that, you know, put his name on the picture, provided right. by. And I'm curious also if this other gentleman want, if, yeah, at the minimum, one would think he would get credit for the photo. Well, right. Uh, I mean, copyright law is pr- pretty straightforward when it comes to the you know photographs. Um, you know, and what makes me nervous is when you see anything talking about copyright law past like the seventies, that's when I kind of get itchy because that's people trying to tweak it. And it's usually not in favor of an individual. It's usually in favor of a corporation. Uh, but copyright law is, is, is usually pretty straightforward, especially with photography. It's like the fact that you take the photo makes you the copyright holder. And then there has to be certain conditions signed away for that not to be, you know, work for hire specifically stating that somebody retains rights. And I don't think that was the case in this. And I'm, I'm trying to remember back. And uh, if I'm wrong, we'll just blame my memory, but it seemed like he had negotiated rights to be exclusively taking photos to begin with. Uh, And I, and it seemed like there was something, there was some other complexity to this that 
he was trying to claim copyright for even photos that he didn't take. But, you know, this, this is, again, is based on memory. Uh, but then the state who signed the agreement to begin with, then somebody, you know, as with administrations change, the new administration doesn't like what the old one had done. And then, so the, here you go, the back and forth. Uh, but like you, like you said, it, it sounded like they were just thumbing their nose up at him. Now, in the, in the case of the, uh, of our, of our friends with the photos up north, uh, that you know, that's just plain wrong. But that's what tines, can, tends to happen now with social media. As stuff gets copied and moved around, it only takes one person who doesn't know that they should be doing it properly, and everything gets attributed. But uh, you know, your media companies are usually used to this because it's it's not rare. So they're pretty quick to correct. Plus, they they've got legal departments who are saying don't don't violate somebody's copyright. And again, generally, you want credit for it. And the aspect that they didn't charge for the use of the photos, I understand that. But did he get yeah. credit for the photos? Right, and and you want the credit when it's the most popular, because you're, what you're trying to do is is build up a reputation, both as a photographer and then also as an expert on the subject matter, the photography the photo is of so that's what was going on in this particular case or the, uh, up north interesting article though it'll be interesting to see the resolution you know if i had to say my case i'm thinking that they're going to they're going to, it's going to be a ruling that cites with the copyright owner that he has it, but that there's nothing he can do about it. You know, they're not going to find the state and say that you're able to do it. Now, what they may do is they may say that the state's not liable, but anybody who is using that material, even if the state says it's okay, it isn't okay because they, they can't give away your right to it. So uh, it'll, it'll be interesting. Let's see whether they're playing on March or April. They think this yep, may go for it. Maybe we'll see a follow-up. <laughs> and then the other option is the Supreme Court go, nah, that's not something we want to talk to about tackle right now. And then, you know, since we're talking about shipwrecks, Here's a little bit of unusual case we don't see happening all the time. A shipwreck has uh, been observed fishing off Somalia. <laughs> <laughs> a shipwreck trawler that once belonged to a Thai owner was found fishing the Somalian waters, according to Interpol. The organization issued a seizure warrant on Tuesday for the trawler that was once registered as the O. Circa. Oh my goodness. S. Sir. Sir Inchinawa 15? What a terrible name. Hopefully it means something locally because that's, uh, that's rough. Which was last spotted in the seas off of African coast. The seizure warrant is based on information provided by the Royal Thai Police, RTP, and the Department of Fishery, which confirmed the vessel was once registered in the department but later deleted. The trawler was removed from the department's registry after the original owner reported the vessel had sunk off the Salmon Sakhun Coast, but the Thai owner claimed the wreckage could not be found. The department delisted the vessel on November 16, 2015, which rendered 
it as a stateless trawler. Under the United Nations Convention of the Law of the Sea, the stateless vessel is barred from engaging in fishing activities. Despite the movie, the vessel mysteriously resurfaced in Somalia. Oh, the move, movie is move. The vessel mysteriously resurfaced in Somalia last year, prompting questions about the real status of, of the vessel. Anderson Promphep, general director of Department of Fisheries, said the European Union had informed the department in November last year the trawler was spotted fishing in Somalian waters. <clears throat> After clarifying the identity of, identity of the trawler, department confirmed the trawler's status as a stateless vessel, which led to Interpol stepping in an its seizure warrant. The warrant allows law enforcement forces in any country to seize a trawler upon its entry to an Interpol member naval territory. Mr. Addison added that the RTP will summon the original Thai owner for questioning. No details are available of the owner's identity. <coughs> yeah, so uh, most of the shipwrecks that we dive on aren't observed later fishing. Yeah, it makes uh, you wonder if it, he claimed it sank for the insurance. Well, exactly. You know, it sinks, you get the insurance, and really you sold it to somebody in the country. Or let's say it did sink, did it just get beached, and then somebody salvaged it? You know, if I'm, I, if I'm, I'm sure in, that's what happened. <laughs> yeah. Well, if I'm in Somalia and I'm dirt poor and I can get my, my hands on a vessel like this and earn some money, you better believe I'm going to try and do it. So, uh, yeah, so, so probably really what it is, it's the insurance company who's this is all on behalf of seizing the vessel because they paid out for it. If it was an insurance uh, issue. I just think it's interesting that Interpol has boats and stuff that they can go on the high seas and take uh, yeah. ownership of the vessel. I mean, the coordination of that, of knowing where it's at, when it's going to be out, you know, it's that's quite expensive, I would think. Yeah. Well, I think we don't, you know, you know, here we are, you know, first word pro world problems were in uh, the U.S. and North America. But we've got our own Coast Guard and Navy and all the, all the forces. And we tend not to play real nice with international agencies where, the, where you've, you know, in some parts of the world, it's actually at their advantage to coordinate with other countries and not maintain you know, maybe what you do is you have a small fleet that you loan or fund to Interpol as opposed to having, uh, you know, your own Coast Guard or federal vessels. You know, cause I, I don't know if this is in the U.S. Would, this would probably be Coast Guard jurisdiction, wouldn't it? I don't really yeah. know. I, I One would suspect that would be the case. I mean, it's kind of it's not an armed force aspect. So no, but you've also got that. Or you've, you could have. FBI, I think if it's if it's U.S. domestic, uh, so, but interesting. It, it, I mean, really not necessarily scuba diving, but uh, it was. I'm looking for shipwreck stories. You know, that's the first time I saw one that was uh, fishing. Um, now we have one, and this is from China, ECNS.CN. Shipwreck emerges after storms in Germany. A photo taken on January 15th shows a storm of fast, the past few days has exposed an old shipwreck in the coast of German island of Rügen. Uh, during the two storms in January, the beach in front of 
Klau uh, lost up to one meter of its height. According to experts, it's supposed to be a merchant ship from the 18th century due to its design. And I imagine this is the same thing as our shipwrecks that show up every so often that somebody over there knows what this one is. Uh, but uh, some pretty hefty bore uh, beams on that, wouldn't you say? Is that I, That's the first item I looked at. So that, that has freaking massive beams on it. But I yeah, was so impressed by the aspect that they lost three feet shoreline depth, you know, one meter. Yeah. That must have been one hell of a storm. As a, well, and that's what it seems like, is you get the storm that moves it all up, and then it comes back almost as quick. Well, I was looking at the one big picture of the distance from the low water level now to the embankment. That's a heck of a distance there. Yeah. So I just wonder if that was after it raked off three feet of, of sand. That's a heck of a lot of movement of uh, material there. Yeah. Yeah. But with that vessel there, that meant that it's been that low before. Um, but yeah, I'm looking at that because usually I don't, we don't see, you look, and maybe it's just the angle, but it looks like those, those ribs are pretty close together. Yeah. And they're pegged pretty heavy. I, it, 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 I'd like to see it. I mean, that's, this is a type of stuff you live for is just being able to see some of the stuff up close, but. Yeah, that second shot is, is really interesting. Is that the one you're also talking about? Yeah, yeah, both of them. Yeah. Yeah, you can see where some of the beams are laminated together. <coughs> yeah, uh, nice, nice photos. Um, and and what's, what's pleasant, pleasing to see is that uh, uh, nobody said this is a pristine shipwreck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's what... Oh, pristine and all the history, and we we must preserve this collection of boards on the beach. And then from that same uh, website, we have a wartime shipwreck prompts a salvage debate. The Chin Yang marked uh, Bei Yang fleet glory days and sudden fall, although the Chin Yang was one of China's shortest lived battleships, it remains one of the country's best known symbols of bravery and patriotism. The 2,300-ton vessel was completed by the Armstrong Shipbuilding Company in Newcastle upon Tyne, England in October 1885. One year later, it joined the Beiyang Fleet and the Imperial Chinese Navy of the Qing, the Qing Dynasty 1644 to 1911 as one of its major battleships. A Chinese crew trained in Newcastle upon Tyne had saved the sailed the ship to the Jemin Funian province with three other vessels, one built to the Armstrong plant and two by Bremer Vulcan, a shipbuilder in Germany. During a five-hour battle in the Sino-Japanese War, 1849 through nine, um, I said 49, 1894 through 95, September 17th, 1894, the Chinyang and three other battleships in the Beiyang fleet were sunk by the Imperial Japanese Navy in the Yellow Sea off Dangdong, Liang province. But the Chinyang was attracted more attention than other ves three vessels because of its attack on the Japanese flagship Yoshino before the Chinese vessel sank. After a boiler explosion, only seven of the crew aboard the 250 were rescued. Wow, that's a huge loss of life there. 
the Beiyang fleet included 105 ships of various types, including at least 10 world-class cruisers and battleships. It heralded not only the start of the Chinese modern navy, but also ranked ninth globally in terms of tonnage. The Sino-Japanese War, which the entire Beiyang fleet was lost, marked a turning point and diverted the nation's attention to national defense from the land to the sea. The Qinyang was the pearl of the Beiyang fleet and became the focal point of both glory days and sudden fall. The story said that under orders from the vessel's captain, Deng Xinglang, it became a national hero. Chinyang Yang attempted to ram the uh, Yoshino at full speed while coming under heavy fire. The Japanese ship was damaged in the same battle, but their account has been challenged by recent discoveries of the wreck of the Xinyang, which lies about 20 meters below the surface in the ocean near Dulu Island off of Danyang. Uh, Dandong, and I, and again, I'll nobody expects me to pronounce any of this correctly, so I could be swearing and uh, not knowing it. The investigation uncovers some 120 items from the shipwrecks, as well as other sunken ships. It was organized in a National Cultural Heritage Administration Underwater Cultural Heritage Protection Center and the Langyong Institute of Cultural Relics and Archaeology. The discovery. Discoveries include damaged weapons, items for daily use, broken porcelain plate bearing the name of Xinyang, and both Roman lettering and Chinese characters have been viewed as direct evidence proving the identity of the wrecked ship. The underwater recovery operation led by Zhong Shengshu, a researcher at the Underwater Cultural Heritage Protection of Beijing, said the parts of the Xinyang boiler lay scattered at muddy depths of the other large area, including explosion that incurred by other vessels. And this is three pages, which we're not going to read them all. I was, I'm trying to get to the point where they're <coughs> the debate, and I'm not seeing it. Well, I'm not sure what they're after because this has been visible since 1937 diver from Japan died in a salvage attempt wreck in 1938. And then they talked about here, uh, a guy recovered a body, took it back in land. They buried it. It was a uh, worship by locals because I thought it was Ding, D-E-N-G, the captain. It was a tourist attraction until 2002. Mm-hmm. But its location it appears that they made some kind of commitment that they were going to protect it while they're doing this. Um, it says in 2014, the Underwater Cultural Heritage Center signed a cooperation agreement uh, with the port group, funding it to protect the shipwreck for the next five years. That would be 14 through 2019. Since then, at least one tugboat's been sent to patrol the waters. So it sounds like other people want to do something with it or have been doing it. But it sounds like through the years, since you could see it from the shoreline, people have been diving it, taking materials as they so need. Yeah. So maybe that's the debate, you know, whether it should be protected or not. And that's up to the, you know, to the local population, whether they want to. Uh, they have a photo here. The uh, the design documents that are kept in the archives in Newcastle upon Tyne, England. So, well, they were talking about the economic aspect. It talked about if it was salvaged today, all the 3,400 residents of the island 
would support it because it would provide the island with an opportunity to develop tourism for people to come out and dive or see the wreck or the artifacts, which mm-hmm. means a lot more to the historical aspects than we do in our country. Right. Well, we'll have to, we'll have to see what they end up deciding to do with it. And then I think this is one of the last articles we have for this week. A ship that sank in 1995 found off Carolina, California coast, 3D model made. Uh, Despite uh, explorations of modern technology, sea still holds many secrets. One of those secrets was the precise location the American Heritage would sank off Carolina. California, many years ago, has finally been uncovered. The vessel went down in Santa Monica Bay in the spring of 1995. No one knew exactly where it was, but former members of the crew said it began taking on water and very quickly sank. All crew members were rescued by the Coast Guard. According to Live Science, American Heritage was used to ferry men and goods back and forth from offshore oil rigs. For years, no one knew exactly where it was located, but now scientists from the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute have found it and created a 3D model to demonstrate how it looks today. The Institute's team first noticed something odd in the water when they suspected it was the missing ship in 2008. However, it wasn't until last spring in May 2018 that they went back to the site and confirmed their find. The wreck is approximately 197 feet long, sits about 2,300 feet down in the ocean. Um... The officials released in a statement December 2018. So just a tad out of diving depth. Even though yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm not. Uh, I guess you could you know, free dive it, but I uh, I'm I'm not aware of any mixture we can breathe on that will get us down there. Did you see the other pictures of the wreck? Did you scroll on down to the bottom? I Meaning, if uh-huh. you look at the 3D model. It modeled mm-hmm. exactly with all the uh, sea growth on it. That's what it looks like. That was pretty awesome, though. Yeah, uh, th- these models are when you're you're getting the accuracy of these uh, scans. It, it is pretty good. And then the last picture actually showed it back when it was hauling what forty six large loaded barges. Uh, so you got a good picture. That's a two hundred foot boat. That's pretty pretty darn yeah, good that size. Is, that is not your. Uh, you know Thomas the tugboat, little tiny guy here. Uh, no, no. This is this is a serious working boat. Uh, you know, and they, and they were using it. And, you know, yeah. This is if you if you watch Deadliest Catch, you know some of the biggest vessels they have in that show aren't quite this size. Yeah, yeah. Two two hundred's pretty serious. That's a, that's not your your run of the mill boat. No, and look at the engines on it. What they, they say they were? Uh, let me go back to that. Oh, uh, I already lost it. It's that one picture where it's um, pushing, not done hauling, but pushing 64 yeah, I, barges. Oh, Take yeah, a look at the back end. That looks like three engines on the back, meaning. <coughs> oh, I see the. Uh, three dive shafts. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. Well, to be that big, you would need something like that because you'd want to be able to maintain your. Uh, capacity with just two of them operating the thirds the kind of a the safety uh, yeah that yeah those barges i mean let's look at 46 loaded barges <coughs> interesting look at that 
to see if I could figure out what the engine was. Now that I said that out loud, it's like, duh. Mm-hmm. I have to search for that. You know, that there, may, there may even be a listing. Let me see if we can. That's what I was looking for. Oh, okay. We have the great big book of everything out there, the internet. We'll see what it will bring up. <laughs> okay. My cold medicine must be kicking in. I haven't hacked up a lung in the last 40 seconds. Well, you sound disappointed. I uh, Believe me, I'm not. <laughs> uh, what a terrible name for a boat. You can't search for it. American Heritage. I've got a credit union. I've got a bank. <laughs> American Credit Union, Heritage Credit Union, Philadelphia. I've got a funeral home. <laughs> I can't find it either. It's just no. too much right now. Yeah, the, I'm, well, gonna, I'm gonna look it up. So if there's something different, we can talk about it next week. Yeah. So that does it for Scuba the News. Yeah, here here we are. We've we've survived this long. Uh, now with with my cold condition and robotic season, I have like zero less than zero percent chance of getting a dive in. But I know people have been getting wet. Do uh, you have any instances that you're aware of? Uh, I went ahead and was shore support. Uh, we dove the North South Pier in St. Joe uh, on the weekend. And the water, I think, was 34, 36 degrees. Visibility went from 5 feet to 2 feet to nothing to 3 feet to 2 feet to nothing. <laughs> It was quite interesting watching them dive. Were they were they grubbing? Well, the intent was to check out suits because they've had been repaired from leaks. And at the end of the dive, it appears that most of the leaks that you had in the suit either uh, were fixed, but you have new ones, or <laughs> or your glove leaked, which made your whole sleeve wet up to your armpit. Uh. Yeah, and I'm, we had two rebreathers and one open circuit, and obviously the open circuit ended first. But yeah. uh, and that oh, golf balls were picked up, so it was an official club dive. Ah, um, they never tried to get further than ten feet away from the wall because if they did, then you had no idea where you were at. You actually had to put your hand on the bottom, feel the look, ripple, figure out where you were because your visibility went away. Look, look. What are you talking about? You would know exactly where you are. You're in Lake Michigan. Ah, yeah. But you want to go towards the pier as opposed Uh, to out to sea. Yes. Yeah. If if you get to people trying to sell you cheddar cheese, you've gone too far. Yeah. And this is where we came up and we had the dive flag out there. We actually had boaters out. Boaters? Yeah. Yeah. January. Yeah. Don't know what they were doing. It did not look like they were fishing, but they sure looked at us like, what are you guys doing over there? Yeah. So we had one dive flag, and the guy stayed within 10 feet of the dock with the pier. Like I said, the open water, I could figure him, the open circuit. But the other ones I would, based on where, what the time frame was, where the flag last was at, I walked. So if the boat were to approach the pier, I would be able to ward them off because I know our guys are not going to go past you know, they're not going to go out. But this is what made me also think of, how do I know where my rebreather guys are? They're not all towing flags. 
See, th- this is why we need sharks in Lake Michigan. You'd be able to find them by the blood floating to the surface. <laughs> or you'd know where it was from the bang stick. Yeah, the, the bang stick. Because <laughs> you can bet your ass if I was out there, I'd get on your bang stick. I, I'm just, what can I say? Yeah, so, so new listeners to the show, we don't have sharks in Lake Michigan. It's fresh water. We're okay. Right, live ones. We have had dead ones in it, but not live <laughs> yeah. ones. That people tossing them in. This year, every, that, doesn't that happen at least once a year? Somebody every goes, year, up in the locks, <laughs> as they drain one out, they'll find a shark that somebody <laughs> brought in, salted it into the locks, so it would make the news. Yeah, but so, you do know the bull sharks are coming up further up the Mississippi. They're being yes. able to t- uh, tolerate that brackish water for several hundred miles, it appears. Yeah, yeah bull sharks, they, they can... Uh, tolerate quite a bit. I don't know what motivates them to go up farther sometimes Food, than others. I imagine. Food? Food? <laughs> Hopefully they're going after some of the uh, what are those carp that are yeah. jumping. Asian carp? Yes. Well, we could do an episode just on Asian carp. Maybe that's what we need to do is uh, come up with some topics to talk about. Uh, so, good. Uh, any dives coming up this weekend that you're aware of? Uh, I'll wait till Bob. I think Bob want to get the boat out, mm-hmm. and uh, we kept saying, "Who's going to dive to Havana first? <laughs> oh, that would be that'd be so tempting now. Well, except that we got a store. Have we talked about during the show? Yeah, we the, mentioned earlier. Which yeah, snow, the, snow warning do you want to believe? I yeah, I. If I you could know. launch from Waco Beach, wouldn't be a big deal. Because mm-hmm. it's straight out and straight back in. And it's that's a max why rock, if we yeah. could get the uh, Bloomington University, IU, mm-hmm. their archaeological yeah. group to come up and dive our area this year, uh, that's where we would stage it from. You know, that would be a nice challenge. Would be we're going to dive a wreck in Lake Michigan every month of the year. That would be something. Now we might lose divers. <laughs> oh. Yeah, because November and December, those can be well you figure they were breaking two inches of ice to get out to uh on diamond lake dive mm-hmm. the uh south bend yeah and you saw the videos yep yeah, they're 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 breaking it out so yeah. okay well hopefully keep my fingers crossed they'll be able to get some in before it starts getting too bad yeah I keep, uh, we're at the time of the year, I keep thinking we're one day closer to spring. Well, we are. I mean, yeah. it's already getting lighter, Lar. Oh, I love that. Don't we all? So do you I have a, do. do you have a safety story for this week? Well, actually I do. Uh, it's also, again, Lessons for Life, and it's called Wrong Turn. Cruising through the cave using a diver Fulton vehicle brought back the magic of cave diving for James, who was having an incredible effortless ride. Didn't have to fight the current caused by spring water flowing out of the cave. He relaxed and let his new DPV do all the work. Pretended to be a fighter pilot soaring around the turns and through the passages. At what seemed like only a few minutes, James released a trigger on the DPV, looked around to get his bearings, and he didn't recognize the room he was in. Worse, He had absolutely no idea where the permanent cave line was. James realized he was lost. The Diver 
James loved diving, especially the gear. He liked tinkering with the new gear, checking out the catalogs and displays at the local dive shop. While he'd never admit it, most of his friends suspected he pursued cave diving so he could play with the cool tech gear that level of diving required. He loved carrying multiple tanks, having multiple regulators. His friends often heard him say, there isn't a problem in a cave that a redundant regulator regulator can't fix. He often carried more equipment than the cave environment required. His weakness, though, was not in spending time reviewing how to use equipment. Now the dive. After seeing a group of cave divers using DPVs and his favorite cave system, James decided to buy one. Told his friends how cool the other divers looked soaring through the water. Soon as the DPV was delivered and he charged the battery, planned a cave dive. His dive buddies joined him, but neither of them had DPVs. The three divers agreed to enter the cave system together. James' two buddies planned a standard progression through the cave system. A dive the three of them made many, many times before, and James would use his DPV. The spring was relatively shallow, rarely dropping low 50 feet deep. What it lacked in depth, it made for in breath. The cave system sprawled underground through various limestone trails for miles, branching off in every direction like the veins on a leaf. The divers had explored the cave system for years, marking routes, laying in permanent guidelines, but still, Many of the branches from the main tunnel remained unmarked. James planned to cruise ahead of the divers with the DPV, following the permanent guideline installed through the main passages of the system. He said he'd return to them in a few minutes, allowing them to use the scooter as well. So all the divers entered the water, relaxed and joking. James played around in the open water area of the spring for a few minutes, getting the feel of the DPV and how it responded. After turning a few loops underwater, he was ready to make the dive, and the three divers entered the mouth of the spring. James cruised through the opening where the flow of water pushing out the spring was the greatest, while his buddies struggled against the water force. In his excitement to use the new toy, James didn't realize he left his buddies behind, almost immediately. After sailing through the passages, James released a trigger on his DPV and hovered in the water for the scooter was lightly, slightly negative buoyancy and began to pull him towards the cave's silty bottom. So James added air to his VC and clipped the scooter to an open D-ring. Made himself positively buoyant so he floated to the ceiling. Wanted to stay off the bottom to avoid silting up the tunnel and obscuring his exit. Shining his light around the room for the first time, James marveled at the elegant rock formation around him. But only then did he realize he'd never penetrated this far into the cave before and Nothing looked even vaguely familiar. He checked his dive computer and realized he'd been inside the cave system for about 20 minutes, far longer than he had planned. He checked his pressure gauge and was relieved to find he had plenty of air in his tanks. Riding his scooter, had been totally relaxed, barely swimming at all. He scanned the room again. It was only 10 feet high, but seemed to go on forever, at least beyond the range of his dive light in either direction. He was not sure which direction he'd entered. Checked the cave floor with his light to find the permanent line. Often cave divers place directional arrows on the line to indicate the way back to the main and to the surface. There was no such line on the bottom. James realized he was lost in the cave system, not sure which way to head, find his way out, he had a limited air. He was in trouble, and he began to panic. Now the analysis. 
This column has covered the topic of panic many times, and we've talked about it ad nauseum in all of our issues that we talked about. Um, other than cardiac as an issue, the only the second most common cause of death is panic. So panic divers make poor decisions and fail to choose life-saving options. Panic didn't cause James to get in trouble in the first place. He made a number of mistakes that put him in that situation, but panic is what ultimately led to his death. When James' buddies realized James had gone too far and too long, they returned to the surface and waited. And they waited beyond his air supply, which should have been exhausted. They still saw no sign of their friend. They called authorities who immediately put a local dive team in the water to search for Experienced cave divers themselves, the team was well-versed in the dangers, special procedures necessary to make a body recovery from a cave system. When James' body was eventually recovered after an extensive search, the rescuers discovered he still had air in his tank. He hadn't run out of air. We can only theorize that when James realized he had no hope of finding a way to the surface and panicked, he hyperventilated, passed out, was unconscious, regulator slipped from his mouth, the only way to avoid panic is to train so the skills required to make a dive safely are second nature. Complex the skills, the more the diver should train so he or she doesn't have to think about them. In any situation, diver's training should kick in so he or she can handle the situation. Diver should be able to stop, take a breath or two, think through the situation, and then act. James had made a number of other mistakes besides not training adequately. He took new equipment to a dangerous situation without considering how it changed his dive plan. He moved so quickly and effortless, he left his buddies behind and did not even realize it. He violated all the lessons learned during his cave diving course and the knowledge he'd gained from his experience. He lost contact with his buddies and, most important, with the guideline. Leaving the permanent guideline in the cave system isn't a problem as long meaning if you leave the guideline, as long as the diver follows proper cave procedure, should have tied off his own line to the permanent line and moved forward. When he reached the end of the line, all he had to do is reel the line in and go back to the main. And then James could have found his way to the surface. Lessons for life. Be familiar with the equipment you're using. If it's new gear, learn how to use it. Think about how it will change the way you dive. Plan the dive. James and his friends failed to make a dive plan other than agree that Jim would use the DPV for return. When he failed the show, even, you know, that it was a plan, but it was very inadequate. Obey the rules. Entering a hazardous situation like a cave or a wreck penetration, it's imperative to follow the rules of the specialized training. James failed to take even the most basic of cave diving precautions by following a guideline and putting out his own. So that's it. A good article right there. And that, and Alexa, that's I, I, like, I like these, but and it seems like we harp on many items over and over, but obviously we really need to think about these because I always like to read them and say, could I have done that? But I have let that happen. I would like to say that I wouldn't panic. I'm I'm not a cave diver. I mean, I've done some light cavern diving, but 
you know, I don't know if I'll ever be a cave diver. Um, and I'd like to think I wouldn't panic, but at some point in time, you have to realize that you're in a really bad situation and, and how you mentally cope with that determines how long you live. Now you, 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 the, the distance might just be the air in your tank, but the fact that he had some air left over, uh, I mean, you dive long enough, eventually you're going to do something stupid. And afterwards mm-hmm. you say, how could, you know, I know better than that, but. Right. I mean, I, I've got a few that could have gone bad, uh, but did not. Uh, I mm-hmm. mean, I do remember one where it was like, really, I got anxious because where I was at was not where I needed to be. And mm-hmm. I was on surface supplied air. And I kept thinking, well, I don't got to be alone. If this craps up, I'm screwed, which I was. But mm-hmm. what I wound up doing is shutting my freaking eyes, holding on to something on the bottom, just breathe. You know? And that's, again, that's what they say to do. Think you're starting mm-hmm. to go a little nutso? You need to stop, shut your eyes, and refocus. Um, and I did. And this brings up yeah. another comment. When we were at the dive meeting the other night, we were talking about the uh, NR5, which are going to try to buoy. Mm-hmm. And it came up that, can you do a penetration on the Ann Arbor? And do you know the answer? Uh, I've heard you can. Yes, yes, you can. In fact, there's two areas. Um, it came up that when people go down and look at the bottom, they'll find an access hat. Number one item, number one item, number one item, do not go in that hatch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Experience Your Life is one of the divers from, we're not going to name the organization that we know of, went in, did a penetration that went from the bottom at 160, no, 172 feet, inside, up, and then up towards the fantail. Inside the boat, went up to the tail. All right? Mm-hmm. I got there and realized he couldn't turn around in one area. So he wound up having to take his gear off, reorient it and himself so he could get back out. Yeah, I've, 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 I've heard that story before. Yeah, and by the time he did all that one, he did not panic. But by the time he got out, his deco uh, that he had was way past what he had anticipated or had planned for. Mm-hmm. Bottom line, it all worked out. But his comment is, he knew better. He was an experienced guy. That is not, meaning that particular penetration dive was not something he would ever do again. And really wants people not, not, not to go into that, no matter how tempting it is. Well, uh, Bob was if, saying on the bottom there that if you actually touch the bottom in that area, it's got such a silt, you just hit your hand on it, and you can't see three feet around you. I believe it. Well, we, we've dove on the, when you head out to Ann Arbor 5 and you come back and you do the barge and crane. Right. That's very silty there. Do you know you can do a penetration on that? I've I've heard the same there, too. That's It came up in the same discussion, except it's open at both ends, so you can actually go through. But by the same token, if you're going to do it, you really want to take a line anyway. Mm-hmm. And, and, for, and for those listening to the show, uh, the penetration in a wreck is a specific skill and training we talk a lot about wreck diving and a lot of our wreck are rubble wrecks so there's you're not penetrating because there's nothing to penetrate 
So you can have 200 dives, but if you're not trained on penetrating, make sure that you you get that training and, and just don't enter the wreck. I mean, it, it's so simple to go somewhere like, uh, let's say the Cedarville that's broken in half now. Yes. So you can go through it. You go left or right into the maze because it's no longer upright. It's almost upside down. So mm -hmm. the orientation of everything is so alien, it throws off your 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 reference point. Well, you well, can how about get in there and get get snagged on something that's very possible that if you panicked, you're screwed. Yeah. That if well, you did get snagged, you got to be competent enough to be able to take your gear off so you are out. You still got your regulator. Mm -hmm. So you can figure out what got you snagged. Yeah. And you, that's where the panic part could come in if you weren't that trained. Well, well, we, we were at the, the meeting this week and you had uh, Bob talk about a, a situation where he's in a high, high current and uh, he had. I, I can't remember what had, had led to the tumbling, but he had had his fin speared by uh, rubble in the bottom of the, the lake. And so here you are in a strong current that's that's trying to rip your mask and regulator out of your, your mouth, and then you have your fin caught. So, uh, yeah, the, the, the same type of situation. Uh, we have the material service barge off of Chicago where they had many loss of life on there. And you look at it today, and it's hard to believe that was ever a penetration wreck, but it wasn't too long ago when it was. Right. They they deliberately went out and did more uh, demolition on it, make it more open because too many people were going inside and not coming out. Yeah. So, uh, good good tips. I always hope, though, I can remember to apply. Yeah. Common sense. Yeah. Well, and, and think of all those stupid things you've done on land, and it's just much worse when you have a, a time constraint and other dangers involved. Yeah, you tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> no, board skydivers are very dangerous. Oh, gosh. <laughs> well, do you have I'm anything looking, you want? I'm still looking for the video of the flying couch. The flying couch. <laughs> It, yeah, it's too windy to, to jump, so you do cross-country. It's like, excuse me, but you still got to land. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I think we're getting towards the end of the program. Uh, so we, had, we had Dave jump into the chat room there towards the end. We had Eric and uh, Karen uh, showing up. So thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, do you have anything you want to plug before we get out of here? Well, I do want to mention that if Karen is out there listening, she might want to talk to Mary Beth. Uh, we've been invited to do a, a little bit of a show and tell, I think, in February at the Niles Library. They're doing a special on the river, St. Joe River. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it's the 16th. They're having a 2 o'clock to 6 o'clock exhibits. They have asked if we would like to participate since we've been doing ecology dives there. And uh, Mary Beth is going to be available. That's also the week for our world underwater on a Saturday. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to go on a Sunday. But uh, I think that Mary Beth was looking to say maybe they could have the ladies do it. Yeah. Which would also be quite good because now we have the women in the club and the president yes. put on that presentation. 
or be there available for questions. Excellent. Yeah. And uh, if I'm around, I'm going to try to tag in on that a little bit. Mm -hmm. So that's probably the main one. And of course, everybody knows our world underwater is that same weekend. Yes. It'll be 15, 16, and 17th. I think Jim's going to go up on uh, Friday because there's op um, opportunities either get certs or to get certain certs uh, reinstituted, get back up to speed on regulator repair, Hank inspections, things like this. So it can be a fun day, fun week. Yeah, so we're get we're starting to head up into that uh, dive uh, show season. Yep. Uh, you know, if Kevin was here, he'd be telling you make sure that you uh, some love to the librarians. That that doesn't come out quite correct, does it? Uh, appreciate your librarians. Uh, they want. No, I can't say that either. Um, Support your libraries. Maybe that's a little bit better wording. Yeah, yeah. When they have so, millage, vote for them. Yeah, yeah. So. And if you're local, don't forget Great Lake Shipwrecks, Ann Arbor, March 2nd. Yep. And I'm and, still looking to see if the ghost ships are going to have a program this year. It sounds like they might, but it hasn't been. The date has not been identified or the location. Yeah, the, the tough thing is the longer you go without having the show up, is to get going so uh you know they, they hopefully they can get something together even if it's a smaller and less attendance just so that you don't fall out of the habit of doing it uh, well it, you know you know it's really intense to do that i think there's two major players who actually you know coordinate and get everything rolling that's a big burden oh yeah you know i mean it's it's I won't say thankless because everybody's glad you did, but, you know, what is it? Many hands make light work. Oh, yeah. And it's hard to get all those hands nowadays. Yeah. So hopefully they're able to, f to find something because that was a, a great show that was uh, well attended and looked forward to. I enjoyed it, yeah. Well, let's go ahead. If you're ready, we can get to that time of the show. Ready. Okay, so this one I think is going to be a a two-parter, so we're going to have a little bit of an appetizer, and then we'll go to the uh, the regular joke. Okay. So Pavlov is sitting in a pub enjoying a pint. The phone rings, and he jumps up. He says, oh, shit, I forgot to feed the dog. Okay, good for the appetizer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so 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 here's the main course. A man walks up to a library and asks, do you have any book on Pavlov's dog and Schrodinger's cat? And the librarian responds, it rings a bell, but I'm not sure if it's here or not. Cute, anyway. <laughs> it's not your typical groaner, is it? No, it's really kind of cerebral, that one. So uh, if if you didn't quite get it, uh, you know, it's a uh, have somebody explain it. Yeah, it's a yeah. We won't explain it here. So until next time, go out there and get wet and stay safe.
And now it's time to have Craig leave.